My new book, Peace Over Pain, is now available. You can buy it for $20 on Amazon or you can download it for free inside my exclusive Facebook group. Simply go to peaceoverpain.com slash join the group. And between the group and the book, you will learn how to eliminate chronic conditions. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. So do you sweat the small stuff? Welcome to episode number 158. Today, I'm sitting down with Christine Carlson. She's a New York Times best-selling author and renowned speaker recognized worldwide for the global success of the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff book series. Before we begin, sit down and relax. And take in this beautiful and important conversation. Let's begin. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Nice to see you. (laughs) So how do we not sweat the small stuff? First of all, I think you have to define what you mean by the small stuff. Mm. When you have a brand like Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and there's all these spoofs about it out there, you know, it's gotten really interesting because um, there's a lot of people that think not sweating the small stuff is not taking care of the small stuff, but really not sweating the small stuff is about having a clearer perspective or keeping life in perspective Mm. so that the small things that annoy and irritate you and take away your life energy from what you really want to be focused on, which is what you value most, whatever that is, that that is really what not sweating the small stuff is all about. So how do you do that? Well, go back to um, what it means to live mindfully, what it means to live with compassion and empathy and, um, and there's a whole host of principles we can talk about as far as you know, healthy um, psychological functioning and living well. Um, and really not swing the small stuff is about practicing life in a certain way that, that brings a sense of clarity, a sense of inner peace, um, a true calmness to your life. When we become more responsive to life versus reactive to life, well, then you're on your way to not sweating the small stuff. Yeah, because there's so much small stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and big stuff. <laughs> a lot of it, there I think, is. a lot of it, I think, comes to acceptance because stuff's going to happen. That's, that's, that's life. Yeah, and it, it kind of comes down to the question. Well, there's several questions that I ask myself when I'm annoyed or bothered. One of them is, is in uh, the original Don't Sweat the Small Stuff book, uh, will this matter a year from now? Well, you can even shorten that. Will this matter an hour from now? 
if it really won't, if you're going to forget about it in an hour, why are you going to sweat it now? But even if it's not going to matter in a year, is it really something that needs to have your full attention taking away your attention from what might be mattering, what might be happening in the present moment or something that matters most to you? What were you and your husband thinking? I mean, what was the goal going into this book? Well, my late husband, Dr. Richard Carlson, was a psychologist, and he was one of the first um, pioneering authors writing on happiness. He wrote a book called You Can Be Happy No Matter What, um, one of his first 10 books that he wrote before he wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And there were a couple of things that I remember that he thought about before he wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Um, one was that his books, none of them had been big time bestsellers. <laughs> so he was looking for a different way to bring what he felt was very revolutionary um, information on mental health to the public. And now it's not so revolutionary, but then it was very revolutionary 25, 30, 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so he decided that, you know, people were getting really busy. Don't Sweat the Small Stuff came out in 1997 when technology was really on the rise. And, you know, we, we thought technology was going to give us all this time, but it actually really overwhelmed people because it didn't give us time. It just speeded us up. So he began to recognize that our culture was get, getting very fast minded. And he really knew that the present moment was a slower experience, but he decided that he would write those small bite-sized chapters so that people could digest one idea very quickly and practice something in that chapter that would potentially change their habits, change their mindset, and help them become a happier person. Right. And That's what he was thinking. <laughs> And it became and very it worked. Possible. Yes, it yeah, did. And it worked. And yeah. people, people still know that phrase to this day. Yeah, it really put that phrase, you know, he didn't come up with the, um, the saying, but he brought it to American pop culture for sure. Now, speaking of your, your late husband, and one of the things you talk about a lot is grief. Yeah. What, what was that experience like? To go through that because his life was cut quite short right yeah yeah he was um only 45 when he died from a pulmonary embolism mm. and that was um 16 years ago so really i mean honestly like we had no warning i don't think he did either um that he was that there was really anything that was life-threatening wrong with him he was just on a flight and on the descent of that flight he had a pulmonary embolism. So, um, on the plane, a, on the plane. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fatal, um, fatal situation. So, I mean, you know, grief is something that is, um, not discerning as far as anyone in this world is concerned, you know, grief is something that comes as an emotional response to loss. And, and um, I'd never really been through that kind of grief before because my parents were both alive. Richard's parents were alive. And of 
course, I'd lost a couple of friends at that point, but nobody that was significantly, significantly close to me. I mean, really, those people are your spouse, your children, you know, your parents, the people that you spend the most time with. And I mean, it, it's, it was devastating um, for us as it would be for any family, as it is for any family to lose, you know, that amazing person in your world. Um, but I mean, I've had a long time to think about it and talk about it and be in the conversation. And I mean, I have to say, you know, my life is richer because of my loss. And I was pretty rich before my loss because I had done a lot of spiritual study and been a meditator and um, been living, you know, very, I, I would say a very good life on all levels, but the process of healing and the shock of loss mm. really woke me up to a whole different um, level of existence and feeling and, and, and life. And it really woke me up. And I, I'm very, and I hate to say this because I'd rather have my husband here, but I'm very grateful for having gone through that because I'm a deeper, more integrated, um, just a more wise woman because of it. You know, death is a very big topic on this podcast. And, you know, I often say that it's like the most important moment of our life is those last moments. Cause it's like, it's like our final exam. <laughs> it sounds like he didn't really have last moments though. It was just sort of a kind of a quick thing. Well, I know that a few days before he was, um, I mean, Richard was a very contemplative man. That's how he lived his life. He was very reflective. And I went back and I looked in his date book and he always left the day before a business trip just to, because, you know, we had a family, it was very raucous, you know, it was very like a lot of commotion in the house. And when he was going to go do anything for business, he would try to go 24 hours early just so he could mentally just calm down and prepare and, you know, and on his date book, it said that he was in a book tour. So he said he was going to go up to Bodega Bay um, before he went to the, um, went on his flight the next day and he was going to um, say his prayers. He said, he said, pray, he had three different entities that he was going to pray to <laughs> cover all his bases. So, you know, in that way, I mean, I think that a very conscious man, there's something in him that sort of knows when he might be getting close to the end of his life, even if there aren't any really precursor warnings. He had done all sorts of things in our house and just weird things that indicated that he had some sort of inkling potentially on the unconscious plane that his time was drawing to a close and drawing near. And so in that way, he didn't have, he didn't have those moments that you have when you're ill and you're sick or, you know, or, you know, you're going to die. He didn't have those. Um, but I just believe he lived so consciously. And then we did have an experience right after where he, re he, we had this woman who wasn't a medium of any kind that anybody knew. She just had this gift and she was friends of, a, of some of our friends. And she called their office and she said, did somebody close to, you know, Rich Navon just, just die because it's a man. And 
and he, he, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to his family. And he really is not leaving me alone until I go to see his family so that he feels like he can say goodbye. So yeah, I guess he did have those last moments. <laughs> mm. Anyways. <laughs> we just really, we just never know. We, mm-hmm. we never know. Nope. And so many people don't realize that it can be over like that. And if they did, perhaps they would live completely different. Right. Well, I think that's um, so true. And definitely, yes, I think that when you are a person who lives with the in within the reality that life can change on a dime. And I think that's one of the blessings and gifts that every person that dies that we love, whether it's a friend or a family member, when they die, they give us that gift because they remind us that life is very temporary. And this experience is very temporary. I mean, I've already lived 16 years without my beloved and I never thought I could live a moment without him. And Mm. here I'm 16 years later and I'm getting, wow, I might only have five years, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years left. Probably not going to make it till after 80, I don't think, but that's just my intuition. (laughs) Mm. I live live kind of like pretty, I feel like I live pretty well and I I, I just feel like that's going to be my limit. I have a feeling, but who knows? Yeah, who knows? You might mess around and be 137. God, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that would be a good thing personally, but. (laughs) Yeah. Your memoir was turned into a movie. It was. Starring Heather Locklear. What was that like to, to, I'm sure you watched it. I mean, it's kind of, it's got to be kind of eerie to, see it on television it really was I mean I have to say I don't think it's very often that you a person alive gets to you know see that I mean a lot of times those movies are made from somebody after they're gone probably for good reason because some of it's not as accurate as when you'd really like it to be when you're alive but they did a great job of capturing kind of the essence of everything Um, and yeah it was surreal I mean it was very surreal and I I think the visual medium of it is very surreal. Um, I think after the third time I watched it, I actually really liked the movie, you know, because I, I stopped thinking of it in terms of, oh, this is my story. And I just started watching it for being, what is the story? Um, trying to disassociate myself with it, like, oh, you know, and, and not be so critical or whatever. And, and I actually really did think they did a great job. So yeah, it was, it was really odd. And especially for my daughters too. Mm. Did you get to consult or they just took it? <laughs> no, no, I did. I did. Okay. I, I, was, I worked really closely with the, um, the writer, but the funny thing was I, I got to read the script, but I didn't get to see the movie till it came out. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot changes. I was on set a couple of times for consulting, but, um, yeah. It, I mean, I, it was good. I, I really trusted the writer. I trusted my producers and I felt like they had my back. You know, they, they, they took good care of me in that movie. 
So you have emerged as, you know, an authority on mindfulness. And so what would you say are the best ways to stay mindful? Wow. Well, I think first of all, to realize that um, really what mindfulness is, I mean, I think it's, it's shown as a lot of things. I have a, one of the, my best friends is probably one of the top mindfulness teachers in the world, Shana Shapiro. And um, so I, I talk to her about this all the time. And I really love her model of mindfulness because um, she talks about it being uh, intention, you know, being very intentional, living, setting your attention, intention on, you know, really thinking about what do I want to grow in my life? And then where you place your attention in the present moment and what is happening in the present moment and noticing, really noticing being fully aware of what you're feeling in this moment. Um, that those two things in essence really help you to slow down and live with a sense of clarity and inner peace and calm. Um, but again, you know, the word practice is really an important word because our minds are just so busy for the most part until we train them better. Hmm. And even then when we get to, um, a level of training, it just never stops. I know that with myself, I can think, oh, I've been meditating for so many years. I don't need to meditate every day anymore. Well, guess what? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, can't, I need to keep practicing. And I remember that all the time when I slide, you know, and I'm on vacation and I just don't meditate. And I'm feeling a little bit like more unsettled inside, you know, and I feel like my mind starts getting heavier chatter, I'm less present. Um, and then if, if all those things are going on, then um, unfortunately for most people, anxiety rises because their minds are so busy. Their minds are, are not maybe well-trained to, you know, to notice that your thinking really does impact everything. All your thoughts impact your feelings, your moods, um, how you're feeling throughout your day, you know, your anxiety. If you're not aware of your thinking, well, then it's like being, it's like, it's like standing at the train station and saying, I'm going to get on this train, but I have no idea where this train is going, but I'm just going to get on and ride that train anyways. <laughs> Let that train take me wherever it's going to go. Mm. I love that because that's exactly what it's like. You don't, you don't know your, your mind is taking you, your thoughts are taking you to a place within yourself and, and you're not having any conscious awareness of that. And so, you know, people wonder, well, how come I'm anxious? Why am I down in the dumps? Why am I feeling so bad? You know, this is at the kind of cornerstone of how you can kind of shift that, take your power back and, and really think of it like practice training your mind. Your mind is like a, is a, is in your brain. Your brain is an organ. It can be exercised and worked with and changed. That's right. It's not easy becoming a Jedi, right? <laughs> I don't know about that, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> How do you merge all this into being a businesswoman, an entrepreneur? Because, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. It's, it's quite a brand. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think because 
we were in this world, you know, we've watched this world. I watched this world of personal development change and grow so much since I was in my twenties. And, um, you know, you're, you know, it's interesting because you're, we've always done it, you know, like we've always been entrepreneurs. So for me, it's just, it's second nature to, to figure it out, you know, it's second nature to, um, look at, you know, business and look at the model and really, you know, but honestly at the corner of what I've always realized is that in this business of personal development, of teaching, you know, you, you have to be just focused on the fact that you're serving. That's the first thing. And, and that it feeds your own heart and soul to be in that position of really privilege and honor to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. to be able to do that is such an honor. Mm -hmm. And I think then um, making sure, you know, I, I mean, I've really never had any problem with humility because life gives me plenty of that. So I, <laughs> I think that I, it's really easy to stay humble in this world. I don't know how people don't because I find that it's that, that life always hands you a good helping of humility when you need it. And so um, for me, I think in my entrepreneur space, I feel like the most important thing I can be is relatable and um, authentic. You know, just being myself is what I strive to do the most is whether I'm speaking on a platform or I'm, you know, doing my podcast or I'm leading a retreat. I just, I really just try to just come and show up as I am. And I think that that's, um, that's the best I can offer and I think that's a beautiful thing because as you do that, then people feel comfortable and, and you're accessible, you're approachable. And then, you know, you can really help people because then your hearts can connect and, you know, when your hearts connect and you make that, that, you know, connection, then you can help them see things or, you know, see things that they might need to see, or just even be an example. So I guess a roundabout way of saying, you know, there's a lot of business practices I put into place too. I think the hardest thing about being uh, the steward of my brand and, and my, my several brands now is that I don't have a CEO and I'd love to have one and I'd love to have a CFO because I don't do, I do the CEO thing very well. I don't do the CFO thing very well, but I'm learning, you know, and I'm always like, I'm always looking at my profit and loss statement. You know, I'm always looking at where is the money coming from? You know, where does it need to be? You know, it's just, it's a big deal. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, it, you know, that part of it can be a little overwhelming to me, but I just, I always just kind of, you know, I kind of take it day by day. And, and then I, I kind of really don't, you know, I don't beat myself up too bad. I just kind of, you know, I just keep working at it. I always say that, you know, being an entrepreneur is actually quite a mindfulness practice in itself. Oh, truly. <laughs> because, you know, where else to get, have all these, like you said, these life throws situations at you that make you humble. And there's, there's all these reasons sometimes to get triggered and whatnot just in doing business, you want things to go your way. An entrepreneur typically is looking for control. You know, you're steering the ship and then something comes along and makes you go like this. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm trying to go this way. <laughs> I'm trying and to it, go this way. 
right? right. And so there's so much, there's so much opportunity to, to deal with these things and create that mindfulness space where you can make it not matter as much. So I don't even know where I would be without being an entrepreneur. Uh, the next best thing would maybe go be go to an ashram or a monastery and just be there because business for me keeps me on track. How about yourself? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love the whole process of it. I love the work. Um, yeah. And it is challenging. You know, it's definitely challenging. You, I mean, really all of life is a practice, every single thing in life. I mean, going to the grocery store, you can have opportunities to be mindful, you know, kids are great mindfulness. I mean, I find it everywhere. So I find that it's just, it's everywhere in life. And it, it really is all about whatever, you know, whatever your reactions to everything are, you know, and, and yeah. I, I agree. I think it's all, I think that mindfulness is, it, it, it transcends everything in your life. It could even you be the, just the, the Wi-Fi going down. <laughs> it could be something simple. Oh, like that. geez. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or technology issues or. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. So let's go back to grief real quick. Now there's no shortcut to this, right? I don't believe so. I mean, I, I do believe that people have their own way of grieving and that um, depending upon somebody's level of attachment per se, mm. they might not grieve as, as long or, or it might be different. It might be softer. Um, I don't really prescribe to know, you know, exactly how somebody else is going to grieve or what they're you know, going to be feeling in grief. But um, I do think that each person has to go through a process of grieving of some kind. And, you know, you see people trying to avoid grief and it just doesn't seem very healthy. Um, I, I feel like grief is something that's very natural. If you watch animals, they don't grieve as long, but they grieve. You know, when you see dogs that have lived together for many years and one dies, there's a week or two or three of, of, of grief that those dogs go through and they are, you know, they're grieving and an animal, a mother animal will grieve the loss of her, her pup or, or whatever. And, and as humans, I mean, we're far more attached than that. So we're going to go through a grieving process, you know, and, and I think the most important thing about grief is that don't make it the enemy you know, the grief is, is, it's got its day and it comes and it comes to help. It comes to help heal you. It's, it's there because you've got, you're going to have built up emotion and that emotion needs to come out. And if it doesn't come out, then it's just going to sit in your body and that's not going to feel good. It could cause all sorts of havoc in there. So mm -hmm. that's the way I look at it. Like it's an opportunity to expel you know, that emotional buildup of, you know, until you reach a level of acceptance of this change in this crisis, you know, and this identity change. Ram Das used to say, ah, go grieve a little more, go grieve a little more. 
Yeah, yeah. People want to get out of it so quickly. They're uncomfortable. Painful. It's very painful. Yeah. Yeah. And some people grieve over not just death. It could be losing a job or a divorce. Yeah, absolutely. Grief is something that can happen over the loss of a house, the loss of a home, the, you know, I mean, anything really, any, any loss that, any loss that affects, um, that, that creates any kind of trauma or a sense of crisis, uh, can, it can be grieved any kind of loss. So, um, yeah, it's not just, it's not just for death. That's for sure. Is there a process they can use to, to go through it a little more comfortably? Yeah. Well, I think just, I always, there's a question that I always ask myself and that's, can I change this? And, and if I can change something, something, then I, you know, I look at, well, how can I change it? If I can't, then I know that it's something I must surrender to. And surrender just means allow. Surrender means allow time, space, allow for your feelings. Don't resist your feelings when they come. Um, I think one of the things our culture does is they want us to busy ourselves through grief and, mm-hmm. and, and so that we don't feel it as much. And I, I actually think it's counterproductive to do that. I think that if you allow yourself time to feel and go through your grief, that it doesn't last as long. In, in your Don't Sweat the Small Stuff series, um, what are some tips for moms? Because you have the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for moms. And, you know, there's a lot of moms listening to this right now. So, Wow. Well, I wish I had my book in front of me. <laughs> I don't. It's been a long time since I read that book or wrote it. But I will say that when I wrote that book, I remember I made the very first chapter there's no such thing as a perfect mom. Because Mm -hmm. I think as moms, we hold ourselves to a really, really high standard as we should. You know, we want to be the best parents, whether you're mom or a dad, that you possibly can be. But I think then to acknowledge that it's, it's really not about perfection. Um, You know, being a great mom is really about being there for your kids and being consistently there and providing, you know, providing a safe, loving um, environment. And then looking at, you know, what are their strengths, you know, in life? How can I promote their strengths? And, and how can I help them when they need help, you know? And whether you have small children, grandchildren, like I do now, or adult children, like I do now, your job kind of remains the same. You know, you're, you're, you're not as responsible at my age as you were but when you're younger, but, um, you know, your job is the same, you know, you're just, you're there, your support, your support system. Um, I've always said, you know, it's not your job to keep your kid from falling down because your kid's going to fall down when they fall, but it's your job to pick them up when they fall. Mm -hmm. And don't we all want to have somebody there to help pick us up and give us a hand when we're down, you know, and that's what being a great mom is, you know, it's, it's great caretaking, but also for moms, it's really important to take care of yourself. You know, it's really important that you feed yourself and nourish yourself and 
take really good care of yourself because it's really hard work and you can't do it when you're overtired and frustrated and, you know, you don't take time for yourself. And I know that that's really hard, especially for single moms. It gets harder and harder if you're a single mom to do that. Um, but when you can, please do, because it, it really does pay off as in your parenting. Um, and then again, like, you know, it goes back to being more responsive. I remember when my girls used to come in, especially as teenagers, they come in the house and it was just a litany of story and drama, like so much drama. And I remember kind of hiding in the house a little bit until they got to the kitchen. And then I remember just like turning and taking deep breaths, like very deep breaths, because otherwise, you know, you can just jump right into their you know, into their energy, into their drama, and then you're not going to really be of any assistance whatsoever. And then there's one other thing I remember I, I really um, picked up on with my kids and learned this from my kids. And that was when they would, there's a couple things when they would come in, I, they would be telling me a problem. And I remember I started to ask them the question, well, do you want my opinion or do you want me to just listen? <laughs> And that was really important. And that was very profound. And it's, I think, changed I mean, many, many people's and parents' lives that I wrote about that because um, most of the time, most of us don't really want everyone's opinion. We just want to be heard, you know? And, I, and as my adult child once told me um, you know, a few years ago, she said, well, I have something I want to tell you, but I really don't want your opinion. I want you to just listen. And so I said, I already kind of knew what it was because she didn't know that her sister had spilled the beans. <laughs> and, but I said, well, I don't, I don't really want you to tell me because I, I don't, I, I have a feeling it's not going to be something I can keep quiet about. So why don't you not tell me? <laughs> and right. it, it kind of saved me a lot of drama actually, <laughs> Yeah, you know, because I, I knew she wasn't, she already told me she didn't want me to give my opinion. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to shut up about this one. So, uh, but anyways, you know, the other thing is like um, really focusing on gratitude in the household and teaching gratitude. And I think the, one of the ways we do that is, is, you know, instead of asking your kid what's wrong, you know, ask them what's right, you know, ask your kid what happened really good in your day to day. Focusing on, you know, what's wrong. It's okay to talk about what's wrong too, but creating that kind of counterbalance um, to asking your children to note what's right. And then I love, I really love, and we did this in our household, the gratitude jar, you know, like mm -hmm. just at, before dinner, family dinners, I think are really, really important. And um, the gratitude jar was all about clipping a piece of paper off and going around the table and writing down one thing that, um, really was great that happened today that they were grateful for and then putting it in the jar. And then we would all spill the jar when it got full and, and do something with it, like make a collage with it. It was fun, you know, like kind of gets you thinking about gratitude and experiencing gratitude and practicing gratitude at a young age. That's great. How did they handle the death of their father? Oh, well, it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> horrible. I mean, it was traumatizing and um, yeah, it's just, it's horrible. There's just no, there's just no white, nice, what nice way to say it. It's, it's horrific. Mm -hmm. And 
it's, it's the worst days of your lives having to, you know, go through those first weeks of grief together as a family and coming to terms with that. And, and yet today, you know, they're both very, they're wonderful women, you know, they've grown up, they miss their dad every day. They, they talk about him, they miss him. Um, they love him so much and they recognize what a wonderful father they had. And, you know, but it was hard. It was really hard. <laughs> and I, I would think that you, you got an extra dose of grief because you were around them as well. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, there's parts about having a family that really help get you up in the day and get you going and, and, and kind of, you have to keep your eye on, on them. Um, and, you know, I've always been, I've considered myself a really good mom. You know, I'm, I put my kids first and I, you know, I've always, I've always thought, you know, I was, I'm a really good mom. And, and so that helped because I, I would really always think about them and, and what they're going through alongside what I was going through. The, the hard part is that, you know, you got to be a lot of things suddenly, like you have to pick up the pieces of everything when your spouse dies, you know, they, there's a lot of responsibilities that Richard took care of that I wasn't mm. responsible for. There was the brand, there was houses, there was so much. We lived a very big life. And now that big life landed all 100% on me. Mm. <laughs> and, and so, and I had a big man who was taking care of with big shoes his, the other side of that life, you know? So, um, it was a lot. And I, you know, I had, I had friends, I had a really good support system of people around me. Um, but it was, it was a lot and I adjusted and I'm incredibly resilient. Um, had no idea the kind of resilience that I had. Um, but I'm, I'm a really, really resilient woman, <laughs> like off the charts resilience, I would say. Yeah. I mean, look, look where you are now. Yeah. You know? So yeah, that, mu that must've been very challenging, but that's, that's what life is, right? Just a bunch of challenges thrown in front of you. And I, I just look at everything as a test. It's like, Oh, okay. This is a test. All right, let's go. <laughs> that's something Richard said a lot. Like he, he did say that a lot too. He just like, Oh, this is such a test. It's all a test. It's just a big test. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Right. And that's what we learned in elementary school, middle school, high school, right? You always, you know, everything always led up to a test. <laughs> that's so true. So why not? And how old are your girls now? They're 30 and 33. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I have five, five grandchildren. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought you were 33. No, oh, thank you. That is so sweet. It's gotta be these filters on this camera or something. <laughs> I, I, I have a youthful quality about me for sure, but I am definitely a grandma. <laughs> grandma. Okay. Nana. They call me Nana. Nana. Wow. Nana. Um, so what's, what's next for you? Do you have, will you have another book coming? Gosh, you know, I, I haven't sat down. I have a bunch of ideas for a book, um, but I've been really 
I've been so busy. I've been helping other people write books now. So I have a, mm. a business with a um, partner, business partner, Deborah Evans, and we call it book doulas. Um, so we help other people book birth doulas. their books. Doulas. Book doulas. Doulas. Like helping someone like give birthing. birth. Yeah. Yeah. Like helping somebody give birth. And um, I actually find that work so rewarding. Um partly because you're sort of helping the influencers rise. We help them build their platforms and they're all really good people that come to us. So um, that work, helping other people write their books is really, it takes up a lot more of my uh, scope of energy, huh. um, but I love it. And so, yeah, I'm sure I'll write more. Maybe it's going to be in a few more years, maybe when I, you know, don't, when I want to simplify my life, <laughs> you know, where I just say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm done working so hard, you know, but, but I still have, I feel like I have a lot of energy and, um, and I just keep playing in ways I want to play. Well, I just gave birth to a new book. You're telling me I could have had a doula. <laughs> you could have had a doula. Mine have made it easier, but if you did it on your own, all the power to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so painful. Did you breathe through it a lot? I did. <laughs> Good. Yeah. It's What's the mark peace over pain. Oh, I love that peace over pain. Yeah. So is that, um, is that about chronic pain, chronic pain and chronic illness? Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I'll have to have you on my, I'll have to have you on my podcast. You have to do a podcast swap. I'd love to. <laughs> and I'm having a virtual okay. book party. <laughs> Oh, Next yay. Week. That's, that's great. Well, congratulations, Kevin. Thanks. And uh, no doula, you know, I, but now I know that I can go get a doula <laughs> to give birth to this thing. Hopefully it doesn't come out sideways. I need, <laughs> it, to be, need it to be vertical and uh, no paper cuts, please. No paper cuts, please. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So no, that's, that's great. Keep finding ways to help people. And, and, you know, the more ways to do that, the more purposeful life is, right? Absolutely. Yep. The end of the day, that's what it's all about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's good to, I was just talking to a, a friend of mine who's a medical doctor. She, she's miserable, right? Cause she's trapped in a, monopoly and you know she's like i like what you do you know because you're really helping people and blah 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 and i'm like well it's nice to just get up in the morning and be like all right i get to work cool let's go like it's a it's a good feeling who wants to get up and go to a job they don't like that's that must be that's tough yeah not for me <laughs> not that's for you especially with the internet now. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, um, you've been around for a while. Uh, apparently you're not 33. So nope. <laughs> you've been around for a while. I've been around for a while. We've seen this internet sort of open the doors. And then when COVID hit, I mean, it just really opened the doors to, I mean, look, we're, we're talking over the internet yeah. right now. I mean, this is incredible. I'm having a book release party on the internet. 
who would have ever thought that could be possible 20 years ago? Yeah, no, it's true. It's changed so much of everything and it's revolutionizing. COVID actually is responsible for really, really this, this just whole new awareness that people can work remotely and do be just as effective and communicate from anywhere. And yeah. And I was using zoom quite a lot, um, through several years before COVID, but, um, boy, sure got, it just got so popular. And I, I think, you know, we look at like the pandemic, how in those ways, it was really helpful in a lot of ways to a lot of people, um, hard, hard, very hard, hard change to go through but there were good things that came out of it for sure. Everyone knows what Zoom is now. Yeah. Zoom stock must have gone crazy. Yeah. Even my, <laughs> my, my 70-year-old parents know what Zoom is. They're like, are you Zooming today? Are you Zooming? You know. <laughs> yeah. And ordering groceries online. This is all normal now. This is... It's true. Even your Starbucks. <laughs> Order anything. A lot of, lot of drive-throughs. <laughs> drive-throughs. That's right. So, where can someone see the movie and also follow your work? People need to go see the movie right now. Yeah, I, you can just Google it. Like on, um, I think it's on YouTube. I think it's on. I think I, I think it's on Prime. Um, it's on Lifetime. It's a Lifetime movie. So if you just if you have DirecTV or cable, you can probably see it there. Um, yeah, it's 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 around. You can find it if you just Google. Don't sweat the small stuff. The Christine Carlson story, and probably if you just say "Don't sweat the small stuff." movie it'll come up and where can they come find you and your work yeah christinecarlson.com or don't sweat.com don't sweat.com uh-huh don't sweat.com oh so you shortened it for the dot com yeah that's what richard did <laughs> i actually think somebody um bought out don't sweat the small stuff and they've owned it but they've never done anything with it because of course we own the trademark on it but they right. probably wanted us to have to buy it from them. And this was a long time ago, but Richard just shortened it to don'tsweat.com. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, don'tsweat.com could mean a whole bunch of different things. It could. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the shorter, the better, right? Yeah. Okay. Last question. Okay. What are three books that inspired you in your life? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, first one was uh, Be Here Now mm. by Ram Dass. Ram Dass. Yep. Love that. Love that book. I also um, loved Shakti Gawain's Creative Visualization. And probably the most inspirational book I ever read was this little tiny skinny book um, called The Game of Life by Florence Scovel Shin. And she, was, uh, she wrote it in 2000, or 1920, I think. The Game Pretty of cool. Life by Florence Scovel Shin. Those are the three books I would say right off the top of my head. And then of course, many, many, many more, but. Yeah, cool. And, and you, I have to give you some credit here. 
you answered this question more efficiently than anyone else. Really? Because I always end with that question. And everyone usually goes, oh, it's so hard. (laughs) I don't know. It's like this big dramatic thing. And it takes five minutes (laughs) because they have to go through the whole thing. But you knew your three books. Well, I have so many more, but those were the three that just came to me. You know, I guess I'm not as much of a perfectionist as most people. (laughs) (laughs) Christine, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, you too, Kevin. And congratulations again on your book. I'm going to look for it. And I would really would love to have you on the podcast too. Great. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.